0: We're talking about the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, you shall not steal. Um, I have to admit that when Rick asked me to preach this particular sermon, there was I was thinking, this is, I don't know why. Why is, does Rick think that I struggle with being a cat burglar at night or something like that? That I really need to focus on this text a little bit. or I'm starting to think now that every now and then when Rick's like, hey, I I don't really want to handle that one. We'll just have Jason come and do that one. That's maybe what's happening. I'm not exactly sure, but I'm happy. I'm happy to do it. Um, I have spent many years actually using this exact commandment as one of those examples of something I'm typically not tempted to do. And and that's been good for me this week because I've realized, no, I steal more than I realize. So I think that's one of the goals this morning. But I have for years in passing said th- to people, like, oh, I'm not tempted to steal, but I do have other things I'm tempted with, right? It's a good thing to be aware of, those that, those that are sort of more the burning coals that you really struggle with versus the ones that may not be. And I always sort of say that kind of assuming um, the person I'm speaking to is going to agree, like, oh, yeah, I'm not really tempted to steal much either. One time, it was very insightful because I have a friend who's a pastor of a large church in Michigan, and I use that comment. I just throw away a line. Well, I'm not tempted to steal, but I have other temptations. And my friend who's a pastor said, oh, I, I spend time thinking about stealing things. Like It's a temptation for him. He says when he goes into museums, he sort of thinks, well, if you if you came through this window, you could maybe get, like, he's just, that's sort of the way his mind is geared. Now, it was funny on the one hand. On the other hand, it was sort of like, wow, that's, that's sort of nice and sobering. We all are tempted in different ways, aren't we? Right? That we all have these things that are just different temptations for us. And so this sort of throwaway line that I would throw, well, I'm not really tempted to steal, but. Man, I'm aware of these other temptations, and some of them I'm maybe not as aware of as I should be. And they realize, oh, yeah, there are some of us that do have temptations in this part, and so many others as well, obviously. Um, Then I realized, even the the next thought I had right when Rick asked is, I was trying to think, what are things that I might routinely or regularly steal? And one thing I know that throughout the 15 years now of, of, since I've had children, I have regularly stolen food from my children, regularly. I call it a daddy tax. Anything that they have, I get at least one or two bites of without any question from them for the daddy tax. And so there's some of that going on, and I don't mean to be making light. Actually, I do. I mean, I'm deliberately sort of making light of this to start off with because, and here's why. I'm not going to do it the whole time, obviously, because it's, a, it's one of God's commandments. But I think our culture as a whole takes stealing at times lightly, at times. And I have in mind like the heist films, right? The movies where there's the band of thieves that you kind of grow to love and they, they have some sort of objective and they're working together as a team and they pull off the big robbery and by the end of it you find yourself, like me, applauding the breaking of the Eighth Commandment. Isn't that an unusual circumstance, right? Ocean's Eleven sort of films, or even go all the way back to Robin Hood. And the the way that you do this is not difficult. The way to make this sort of a film, all you have to do is you make the thieves sympathetic and likable. That's the first key. If the thieves are not likable or sympathetic, you're never going to cheer for them. But if they're quirky and they're likable and they're funny and all these other things, and the most important thing, right, it's not only that the thieves have to be likable. What else has to happen? For me to cheer for the thieves, what has to happen? The person they're stealing from has to be unlikable. That's the bad person. But it's actually really a funny thing, isn't it? Because they're really not the bad guy. They're the victim. And if if you really think about justice, that the person who's getting stolen from is the victim. But if we write the script in such a way, it just says, oh, likable band of thieves... And something, and it's usually a character trait about this person. A lot of times they've killed someone's father or something like that. So there's really a good reason we don't like that person. But we don't like him. We do like them. And now we find ourselves applauding for the breaking of the eighth commandment. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? And culturally, it always works. It always works. If you interview people after that movie, I, there's, I don't imagine there's anybody that walks out and says, I just don't like celebration of sin like that. We should all probably feel that way a little bit. But we just don't. Why? Because we get carried along in the narrative. We get carried along in the script. And because of that, we end up taking what is a huge issue for God somewhat lightly. It's just the way it happens. So we're going we're to talk about that a little bit. And I don't think it's just in fiction or just in... Um, the world of films or books or things like that. I I don't know if many of you, for some reason this last, I think it was a week ago, a little week and a half ago, this story came out about this security guard for the McDonald's Monopoly game. Did anybody read this like super long story that came up? It's super fascinating of a guy who he was the top executive in charge of security for the McDonald's monopoly peel off scratch system. It's not a scratch, but they peel off the things. And and it's sort of, he created over years, this elaborate system where he was the only one who had all the checks. And slowly and surely what started happening is he would take the envelope to the men's restroom, because the person who was supposed to be his auditor was a female, so it was the only time that he wasn't in her presence, he would rip open the envelope, he would remove all of the winners, like the million dollar winners and the cars, put them in a secretly stowed pouch in his vest and replace them all with just more railroads or whatever else, free Big Macs or whatever else. And then he would deliberately, the system was set up to where he flew to all of the different McDonald's warehouses and would put supposedly the winners in the right places, but he had all the winners in his pocket the whole time, and he would sell them on the side. The FBI was tipped off whenever one family in Jacksonville won three cars and a couple of million dollars probably wasn't the wisest. He probably should have spread it out geographically a little bit more. But the same thing happens there, right? I'm reading the story, and I'm kind of caught up, not in the deviousness and the evil of the sin. There's a part of me saying, well, there's a somewhat, I don't know how likable the thief is, but at least the person being stealing from is not someone that I feel a lot of sympathy for. It's corporate America, McDonald's, right? That's sort of weak at all. Some of us might think of, well, there's probably someone who owns a McDonald's in here. I'm just now realizing it. So if, you, if you're an owner of the local McDonald's, please forgive me. But there is, you could even probably admit that corporate America can tend to be treated as a bad guy. And therefore, it's okay to steal from them because we all know how they've been stealing from us all of this time or whatever else. So this it's just an interesting sort of thing to think about that sympathetic thieves who are often, in the films, at least attractive, and they have so many traits that are charming, and it's actually one of the things that makes them such a good thief, um, and then we end up basically celebrating the sin. Now, I'm not going to use the most contemporary example on this, but Charles Dickens, um, when he wrote Oliver Twist, so if you've either seen the movie or read Oliver Twist, he um, When he wrote it originally, he got some pushback. And the pushback that he got, this is in like 1830, right? The pushback that he got was for making the crime world look so dirty and gritty. Right? The thieves, so Oliver Twist is, is, a, is an orphan who sort of kind of gets wrapped up into this underbelly in London of pickpockets where they're sending the children out to do the pickpocketing. And, and you know, and, and the people, all of, all of the network that they spend time with um, are thieves and prostitutes and people like that. And there's this sort of dark Overshadowing. In fact, in the book itself, it's sort of interesting how many times that they walk past the gallows that they hang thieves on. Now, we don't hang thieves these days, but back then they really did. And so it's sort of this just dark and, and, um, kind of grisly account of that world. And when he wrote the book, there were many people in London at the time that said, this book is a little too dark. It's a little bit too real. Why, Charles Dickens, did you have to make this book so dark and gross and ugly? So in the preface of his second book, the second version, I'm sorry, of Charles Dickens, he, he addresses it. And I think it's one of the more fascinating things to think about on these sorts of issues. So I'm going to read this just a little bit and we'll stop and kind of parse that a little bit and then we'll, we'll jump into the meat of the sermon. He says, when I first, I'm going to paraphrase the first, when I first wrote the book, there were some criticisms that came um, upon the morality of my book. There's a couple of scenes in particular where one of the thieves commits a murder and he writes it pretty grotesquely. And like today's audience might not find it all that disturbing, but it was sort of really, really a, a lot of detail um, in that day. So he said, I got a lot of pushback about this book. And I've spent some time thinking about why did I write it the way that I did? And this has everything to do with what we just talked about. He says, the more I've thought about it, the more I've decided I did the right thing. I'm not apologetic. And here's what he says. I have read of thieves by scores, seductive fellows, amiable for the most part, faultless in dress, plump in pocket, choice in horse flesh, bold in bearing, fortunate in gallantry, great at song, a battle, a pack of cards, or a dice box and their companions are the bravest, right? So what's he saying? I've read in all these books, all of these times of thieves who are exactly what we've just, discussed, we just talked about, good-looking, uh, energetic. My favorite line is choice of horse flesh, right? They've got the best horses. They're good at cards. He says, I've read that account of thieves so many times. What? The likable thief. He's read that so many times. He says, but I had never met with the miserable reality The miserable reality of what being a thief really was. Here he goes again. It appeared to me that to draw a knot of such associates in crime as really do exist, to paint them in all their deformity, in all their wretchedness, in all the squalid poverty of their lives, to show them as they really are, forever skulking uneasily through the dirtiest paths of life, with the great, black, ghastly gallows closing up on their prospect. They're always running from being caught and being hung. It appeared to me that to do this would be to attempt something which was greatly needed and for which would be a service to society. And therefore, I did it the best that I could. So what's he saying? Parse it out. I've read so many times of Robin Hood, the thief who is good-looking and seductive and friendly and we like him, but I haven't read in fiction, he says, often enough, how bad this lifestyle really is and I decided to try to make sin look like sin. And he said, I tried to do it the best that I could. I wanted to make sin look bad. And if you think about that, right, that sort of, An interesting thing, because so much of what we intake in media, this is one reason churches and Christians sometimes can be weary and should be weary of media, so much we intake of media is glorifying some aspects of sin. And he's saying what we should be wanting to do is see sin for what it really is. The damaging, deranged, insane, twisted nature of what sin is. And if we do that and do it well, that's something to be proud of. The flip side also is something really hard to do in film is to make virtue look really good, right? To make marital fidelity something that looks attractive. That when you walk out of the film, you're like, that's what I want. I want to be faithful like that. That's hard to do. It's hard to find things like that. So here's what we want to do. We want to think about... Thou shalt not steal you shall not steal. We want to think about it from the big picture version of what the Bible's showing us. And that's exactly what we're doing and then we're going to see how it runs to Jesus really quickly from there. So, let's return to ourselves, right? So in my own dishonest and not accurate understanding of what I struggle with in terms of stealing, my thought is, oh, I don't really struggle with stealing. I have other things that I have to worry about. And what that means is it sort of becomes this, this problem that I'm just not aware of. And that's why this week was very helpful for me, because it opened my eyes to areas in which I might struggle with this that i am just not been aware of. So, Lord willing, the Spirit could do the same for you. So, we're going to look at some scripture Um, sometimes we're going to flip two of them, sometimes they're not, because I don't want to flip two million uh, passages. In a sense, the entire story of the Bible could be described as someone stole something they shouldn't have. And it set the entire course of the Bible. Right? So Adam and Eve were placed in a garden. Interesting, they were given every good thing except one that was not good. We're told, don't eat from this one thing, and they stole. Now, we could do all kinds of psychology and even some textual stuff of why did they steal and what were they wanting, but one thing that we know is that the serpent tells Eve, hey, this, this is not only looks attractive and looks like it's good for food, it's going to open your eyes and it's going to make you be like God, because then you'll know good from evil. So there's something that was attractive. Among the things that were attractive about that piece of fruit was the fact that it was going to make us like God. Right? So it's like there's, I went, I went, we're going to use a mental visual image here of God's glory is up here, right? And we're here and we see God's glory. In this case, it's, it's this fruit hanging on this tree. And we want that glory. And so what do we do? And I say we because it's how the Bible talks, right? That Adam and Eve are representative heads and somehow, in some way, we're present in this decision. We want God's glory and we decide to take it ourselves. So we steal. We steal God's glory. And the more I've thought about that, it's such an interesting mindset because I do this all the time in my daily life now. Even when things go well for me, So many times will I sort of, before I even think about it, kind of think, I did that. That's because I'm so great. That's because I did something well. And my heart attitude towards gratefulness for all the blessings that God's given me is something I have to train and I have to try to establish that. Oh, no, no. Thank you, God, for that. Should be my first heart's response. But no, because I like to steal God's glory, my first response is way too often, look what I did. Look what I did. I could do it again, right? With all these other crazy lies. And so at our very heart, we see from the Adam and Eve story that we are nothing other than glory bandits. We steal the glory from God constantly. We want the glory for ourselves. We want the recognition for ourselves. This is why the New Testament says things like, hey, if you're going to boast, boast only in Christ. That's the good solution for being a glory bandit. Every single time you're tempted to take the glory and steal it and pull it down from the tree to recognize, oh wait, if I'm going to boast, I've got to boast in Christ and Christ alone. Which is why coming this morning and singing the exact songs we sing help us, remind us of that. And we're joined around other believers and we're, we're encouraging one another. In Christ alone, that's where we find our hope. So that's the big story of the Bible, right? The big story of the Bible is we as humans decide to steal God's glory and then God sets up a plan of how he's going to solve that problem for the entire rest of the Bible, right? He's got thieves. He's got bandits loose. How, what's he going to do with the bandits? And it seems like at first, why is God so... Uh, stingy with his glory? Why doesn't he want to share his glory a little bit, right? It's a little bit of a, why wouldn't God just, I mean, he's got all the glory. Why wouldn't he mind us taking a little bit of the glory? And we're going to see that God's not being stingy with it. He just, he has the plan for the appropriate way for us to enjoy that glory. So that's the first thing we can learn from Scripture is Adam and Eve. That's the, the big picture story of the Bible. We are glory bandits. We're trying to steal God's glory. And in that sense, every one of us can right now say, okay, yes, we all do every week, probably every day, steal. We steal God's glory. We try to pat ourselves on the back for it instead. Another famous thief from the Bible in the Old Testament is Jacob, right? Jacob is a deceitful thief, Sort of fascinating if you think about it, right? So remember, let's just refresh our memory. Jacob, um, he, he's a twin with his brother. Esau, his brother, is the older brother. Because he's the older brother, he should get the birthright and the blessings. And technically, he should be the one through whom God's promises from Abraham should go to Esau. But it doesn't work that way, right? And it's really strange turn for the way that God tends to work is that God uses Jacob's sin and deceitfulness and actually ends up blessing Jacob instead of Esau to the point that Jacob's name gets turned to Israel. Isn't that fascinating? A thief. Remember the, the two things he does, his brother comes in, his brother sees, the idea we have of Esau is a little bit of sort of a I don't know what word we want to use, but he just, it doesn't seem like the sharpest tool in the shed, right? Because he comes in, and he's been hunting, and he's hungry. He's like, I'm so hungry. And Jacob says, here, I'll give you some of this soup if you sell me your birthright. He's like, all right, give it to me, right? And it's, so it's, it's a double story. It's a story of Jacob sort of being conniving, Jacob's being very uh, willing to take advantage of someone. But it also shows Esau, Esau's contempt for his own birthright. He didn't really care for it anyway, or he would have never done such a thing. And so you see Jacob do that. But the more deceitful part is when Jacob dresses up like his brother, puts the, the animal skins on his arms, and goes into his father and says, breaks the commandments of the, the, the lion command, I am Esau. Here's the food that I've prepared for you, father. And Father, the father blesses him with the blessing that should have been reserved for his brother, right? So you have this stealing going on, the stealing of the birthright, the stealing of the blessing. And what's so fascinating about it is God uses this sin in his story. That doesn't mean he blesses it, right? We know that. God does not bless the sin and call, oh, it was good this time. It just shows us how God can use us even in the midst of our sinful circumstances and our hearts that can produce this kind of problem. What we see in that is we see that we like jacob are deceitful thieves as well um, we can in all kinds of contexts act like we're doing something that we're not doing which is in a sense a sort of stealing uh, our very first year of married marriage my wife and i've celebrated 20 years of marriage this summer um so 20 years ago this summer probably 20 years ago about right now We were living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we're from Oklahoma originally. My wife is a business person, so she had a fancy, for our first summer of marriage, she had a fancy internship with a nice business that paid her well. I was a philosophy major, so I spent the summer working in construction. So if you're 17 or 18, you're going to college. You might, you might not need anything else other than choosing your major, other than that right there alone, right? Business gets a nice desk job. I was out in 100 degree, 110 degree heat working all summer. Um, and I remember the guy who kind of took me under his wing. His name was Joe. He was 40 years old, and Joe was never going to have any other career other than construction, right? Just that's that's what he had always had done. That's what he was going to do. And one day it was late in the day, and I was. I grew up on a ranch, so I I like working and I was working hard and Joe kind of called me over and in his own kind way said, hey, you don't work that hard at 430. The clock's about to go. So he said, here's what you do. And I'll still, I never remember it. He had a shovel. It was one of those, you know, those construction shovels, the square shovels. And he's like, you just sort of move the dirt around and then you put it back and then you move the dirt around. And you put it back, and you move, and he never moved. He sat there, and for 30 minutes, he moved the same dirt back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And this was a life lesson he was teaching me. He was helping me learn. That's what you do at 430. <laughs> now, in construction, it might be its own unusual because you can't really start a whole new project at 430. You can't really, you know, but still, yeah. And then I realized, you know, that's not something only construction workers do, right? Right. Don't we all have temptations, no matter if you're on the clock or you're not on the clock, to have times where you've got too many tabs on your browser up that you're flipping back and forth in between or whatever else? And so Joe moving dirt with a shovel is more tangible reminder of sort of stealing wage without earning it. But we all do that at various times. And so we're all a little bit like Jacob in that way. Another famous thief from the New Testament, a short little thief from the New Testament, but I know his name. We could all sing a song, Zacchaeus. Yeah, let's flip to this one. Let's go to uh, Luke, I didn't write this down, but I'm pretty sure this is in Luke 19. Let's just read this really quick. It's actually interesting. For a story we all know so well from the children's song, it's, it's not a real long chunk of scripture. It's a very vivid story from scripture, but it's not something that um, is, is an overwhelmingly long piece of scripture. Pause, by the way. If 15 to 20 minutes into a sermon, the pastor has read more Charles Dickens than the Bible, that's a problem. It's the one thing about the structure of the sermon I do not like, but we're going to make up for it now, I promise. But just as a radar, more Charles Dickens has been read than Bible, not a good situation. But now we're going to start to remedy this in some way. Let's read Luke 19, starting in in 1. And I want to read this, and we'll just really quickly move through this as well. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also was a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's a beautiful story, vividly told, right? With nice details of the way that Zacchaeus lived. And even you, get a, you almost can get a mental image of what he looks like, and then the, the specific tree that he climbs up into. But the reason I think that the story abides with us so much is because of its, however many verses we just read, 10 verses with a radical life transformation built in. Someone meets Jesus, And they go from being a tax collector, whom we all know tax collectors became rich because they overcharged people the taxes. It was built into the system. It wasn't even like anyone was frustrated about it other than the ones that were being taxed. So the people up above, like, hey, the more tax you gather, the better. We don't care. Just gather as much as you possibly can because you have our soldiers at your disposal. And so there wasn't like he was playing two sides. He was just overcharging to become rich. And even Matthew, one of Jesus' own disciples, was a tax collector and likely participated in this own behavior himself before he met Jesus. So we have this man who's a thief. And in this case, he's not the, the sort of sympathetic thief. right? This, if, if we saw the movie about this guy, we'd all hate him. Why? Because he's stealing from the little guy. He's stealing from us. We don't like that. But we see him meet Jesus. We don't even know what conversation took place. If you take the text really literally, Jesus didn't even have to talk to him. The mere fact that Jesus wanted to be with him and him being in Jesus' presence was enough for Zacchaeus to say, I've been doing this the wrong way. I need to give back those. I do like the if I've defrauded anyone. right? It's pretty clear you have and you probably know that you have. I'm going to give back and more what I've taken away. Because so we have this, this great little story of Jesus interacting with someone who's a thief. That's beautiful in and of itself, right? I, I have no reason to expect that it wouldn't be the case that in a church this size, in both services, there's not people in the room who have been caught stealing at some point in the past, right? And their life came crumbling down around them. And maybe you lost your business because of it or whatever else. But here we have this beautiful case where Jesus goes to the thief, right? Jesus is, is not... He's not sickened by this like everyone else is. Jesus goes to him, says, I want to come to your house, and we see this life transformation. And I can just remind us, what do we do in that same vein? Well, there are some of us in business practices that we could do similar things, right? So I've spent substantial amounts of time over my last 20 years doing sales of various kinds. And do we have any other salesmen or women in the room? So salesmen or women, a couple. Salespeople, depending on what you're selling and who you're selling to, can sort of be given freedom, and not only just freedom, be given permission and even requested by your employers to overcharge people. And the deal that most of the people that I work for, they'll say is, hey, if you can, if you can charge more, then here's the bottom price that we're willing to sell this product for. If you can charge more for that, you get half of what you just overcharged. And what's that do? That turns your greed meter up a little bit. Like you walk into someone's home and and they this person has money. This person doesn't know how much this thing costs. I'm going to just tell them that it's 50% more than it is. And I just made 25% more on, on my commission, right? And so... That's something I've had to deal with. And I've just, I've come to the realization, you know, I sell things, the very best I can to sell for the same price, regardless of whose house, regardless of what questions they ask, whatever else. But I know for a fact that I've had colleagues that will walk in, this is the way sales floors work, right, giving each other high fives like, oh, that little old lady, she had no idea, and I just doubled the price on her. That happens, right? That institutionally happens. And the boss of that person is giving them a high five because the boss just made more money because their commission is based upon your commission. So, not picking on salespeople, because I, I am one at times. Um, but I just want us to realize that all of our work could have similar possibilities of improper business practices. And then we have Jesus's words in Matthew 15. Um, let's just look at this really quick. I think that we've been looking at um, sometimes when Jesus says, and this is just one verse, and then I want to really drive the last few minutes, last 10 minutes or so out of... Uh, some alternatives to being thieves. In Matthew 15, verse 19, Jesus is teaching on this matter. It says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's kind of amazing how many Ten Commandments get wrapped up in that one. My, I'm, I'm almost sure that that passage has been read before. I've been listening to the series, and I'm pretty sure it's come out. So what's Jesus saying here? Okay, yeah, we do have this problem. We want to steal God's glory. We want to steal other things, right, for all kinds of different reasons. Maybe because we feel like we have a need to do it. Maybe for all of these other situations. Uh, Maybe we're just, you know, we want the esteem that comes with having these things. But the real source is our heart. right? So we can go back to the big picture story. The reason we want to steal this glory is because our hearts are broken and damaged. And we want to be God. And we don't want to be who we are. And we want to steal God's glory. And so we've got this problem. The problem, when we realize that the problem of stealing or all these other commands comes out of the heart, the problem just became a lot deeper because it's not enough merely to stop stealing, right? It's not enough to merely stop stealing. It's to fix our heart that makes us want to steal to begin with. And I think we could all agree that's outside of our power. I can't I don't know about you, I can't fix my own heart. I can't correct my own corruption in my heart, and you can see where this is going really quickly. Obviously, Jesus is gonna be the one to come and do this. Okay, let's spend our last ten minutes thinking about what's the opposite of stealing in the Bible. Right. So, so there's stealing, don't do it, it comes from our hearts, we want to steal God's glory. Um, where is, what is sort of the solution? How do we see Jesus redeeming this for us, specifically as individuals? Well, obviously, the clearest opposite to stealing something is having been given something. Right? If you're given something, you couldn't have stolen it. It's what makes that scene from Les Mis with the bishop very powerful, right? So Jean Valjean. Is there ever a more sympathetic thief in all of the world than Jean Valjean? Right, He stole some bread for his, his sister's kids or whatever. I stole some bread. Right, That's all he's done, right? That's, there's no more sympathetic thief ever. He just stole some bread, and then all this horrible stuff, this horrible man's chasing him down and hunting him off the face of the earth. But you recall, he gets, he gets called into the church, and in that, in that moment, he takes some of the silver, and then the, the police find him and bring him back, and they say, this idiot, he's stolen your silver, and he had the gall to tell us that you gave it to him. And what's the bishop say? He's like, no, that's true. But not only is that true, you forgot the candlesticks. These are the best things. So here... Take the candlesticks. How dare you forget the rest of my gift? And it's this really beautiful scene of, of a redemption of, wow, instead of being a thief, he is now called someone who was given a gift, even though he really was a thief. And that, if you know the story at all, that's the transformation. That's the moment of the transformation in this figure that he moves from being a thief to a noble person, even though he still has this past chasing him around. And so what we see here is this is the same thing that happens to us. We don't have to steal God's glory because if we go through the right avenue, we are given God's glory. So let's go to John. And I'm going to look at a couple. We're going to do a little biblical theology of giving in John, literally the word give. It's it's an important word for John specifically, and we're going to see a couple. So go to John 3 really quickly. John 3.35, and we're sort of focusing on what is it that God gives? What is it that Jesus gives? So John 3.35, very quickly, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Okay, so all things are given to Jesus. So the glory gets given to Jesus, right? So we want the glory. We want to steal it. That's our part. That's why we're the bandits of the glory. But God has the glory, and he gives it to Jesus. Now, go to John 13, please. Three. A lot of flipping. Sorry about that. But I want us to see these things with our eyes in the text. John 13. Let's start in two. This is, this is at the Last Supper. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taken a towel, tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that he has wrapped around him. So God's given the glory to Jesus. Jesus knows that God gave him the glory. It's a, it's a sort of a fascinating preamble to Jesus' action here, right? Jesus, knowing that God has given him all things, decided to become a servant and wash feet. You could it could almost set up to say Jesus, knowing that God had given him all things, decided to call a press conference, so make sure everyone knows that he was given all things. Or Jesus, knowing that God had given him all things, decides to have a parade so that everyone could celebrate that God has given him all things. But instead, you see just the opposite. Jesus becomes a servant. And now, the passage I really want us to focus on is the high priestly prayer in John 17. I'm not going to read the whole thing. If I had read more Dickens, I would read the whole thing to make up, to make sure that our percentage is okay Bible over Dickens. But you can see my Bible here. I just went through and circled every time the word give or given shows up in John 17. John 17. And I haven't read, I think it looks like 17 to 20 different places. Um, let's just start off at the first, and then I'm going to skip forward a little bit. John 17:1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, this is right before Jesus dies, right? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. Pause. God gave the glory to Jesus, and Jesus has given the eternal life to us. So the primary sin, the primary thing that we got wrong through Adam and Eve is we thought we had to steal this stuff. But no, God's plan was, no, 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 I'm not being stingy with the glory. I'm going to give you the glory. I'm going to make you joint heirs with Jesus. But you can't bypass the role that Jesus plays. You can't just go grab it. Let's skip forward to verse 22 of the high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. That's, this is this beautiful little... This, this creates our, 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 our triangle here, right? We tried to steal the glory because we're glory bandits. Jesus got the glory from God in order to give the glory to us. That's exactly what he says. You gave me the glory and I'm giving it to them. And part of that glory is we get to see Jesus in glory. And that's part of our problem, isn't it? Our heart wants to see ourselves glorified. That's our primary sin here. We want to see ourselves be glorified. The sin is a desire to be lifted up ourselves rather than to be like John the Baptist and say, he must increase and I must decrease. He's the one that receives the glory. He's the one who deserves the glory. He's the one who gave me the glory. And I am excited not merely to go to heaven to be glorified myself, right? What we, our true desire as believers and as we become sanctified, it becomes more and more a reality is I cannot wait to get to heaven to see Christ fully glorified. Now, I get a benefit from that because I'm a joint heir with Christ, but ultimately I see what Christ has done for me, and he's the one that gets the glory. So here's here's the little punchline here, right? Because of what Christ has done and who Christ is, we already have everything that we need. We don't have to steal anything. So now we can get back to the tangible, right? We don't have to steal the bread, we don't have to steal uh, from the IRA of our customer or whomever else because we already have everything we need in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but there are many times I don't feel like I have everything I need in Christ. In fact, there are some times that I'll look at my bank account and I'm pretty sure I don't have everything that I need in Christ. But you know what that is? That's theological forgetfulness. I'm forgetting of all of the things that Christ has already done in forgiving me of my sins. Whenever I see those things and I feel the stress and I feel the concerns start to well up, that's a great reminder to say, okay, 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 let's just hit pause and I need to worship right now because I've been forgiven so much that I, my sins have been washed away and I have a joint inheritance with Christ and I can see him glorified and be glorified myself but that glory, I've, rather than me having to take it myself, I can celebrate the fact that Jesus is the one being glorified. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to see in these moments that you have given us everything we need in Christ. What's the second opposite of stealing? Well, the second opposite of stealing we're going to see in Ephesians 4. It's our last passage we're going to look at. Ephesians 4, one verse, not a long passage. Ephesians 4, verse 28. I, I just love this passage. This is Paul. And he's given admonitions to the church. Ephesians, the first three chapters is a lot of theology, and then the last three is a lot of application, a lot of sort of daily life stuff. And this is just, a, just a one verse out of the blue. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Right? It's, it's pretty simple. The logic's simple. There's people in our midst that are thieves, Right? We all are, but here he's probably talking about a professional thief, right? Let the thief stop being a thief. But not just for him to stop, that's not enough. Rather, let him do honest work with his own hands. There's a nice little theology of vocation here, right? There's something God. you see, and it's all the way through the Bible, you see the nobility of work, right? You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be Rick to have a calling. You see here the nobility of work. So let him stop stealing. Let him do honest work with his own hands. My favorite part is why? So that he can be rich and retire? No. In this verse, so that he might have something to share with those in need. So there's a a little application, right? The opposite of stealing is work with our own hands for the purpose of giving. For the purpose of sharing. For the purpose of being a blessing to others. Now, that can be, in our context, a couple of different ways, right? We, we should be giving to one another. We should also be not withholding our money from the local ministries of the church. This is where it's nice to have a, a visiting preacher come in. This is a beautiful church that you have. It's got grounds, and most of you, most of you are only here one day a week. So you have no idea how much labor gets put into keeping these lights Changed and the grounds clean and the dust swept away. When I, the first summer I worked as a, as, at a church office, I went home and told my parents, I'm surprised how much time pastors spend moving chairs. It a small church. But even in a big church like this, I guarantee, and it happens every church I've ever worked for, there's always times, oh my word, the women's Bible study is this morning, and we all forgot about it. All right, pastors, we gotta go move all the chairs. Every church I've ever worked for. Uh, I actually thought it's probably a best, you've, you've got this MDiv and you think you're all a big shot and all of a sudden you find yourself moving chairs or you're moving kids' classrooms. It's kind of a good humility. My, my guess is the, past, the staff here has moved chairs in the last week. I'm not going to ask, but, but it's just it's part of what happens. But you want to withhold, and I'd sometimes I know there's this negative feeling of giving to the church so for some people of like, oh, you know, look, I mean they've got all that money and whatever else, but what we're giving to is the ministries of the church, so the church can do what the church is called to do and do it well. And my guess is, there are some of us that are not doing a very good job of that. And in its own way, that is, in a sense, could fall under this commandment, where we are not giving back to the ministries of the gospel that which God has given us. It be an application point, maybe, for some of us. So, Application really quickly. We want to pray that the Lord would give us eyes to see how it is that we're stealing his glory or any other tangible things that we may be stealing, time, resources. We want to see those things, ask God to show us to them. We're going to then confess them and repent, turn away from them, and we're going to run to Jesus realizing that he's given us everything that we need. We don't have to steal the glory because the glory is coming from Jesus. Jesus. By God's plan, so that we can be glorified with Christ at the last day. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for um, your word. I'm just struck right now with the fact that um, I want to steal your glory, and it's something that's going to become a gift to me. <laughs> it's sort of insane to steal something that I will receive at some point through Christ. So, God, give me the faith to stand and the faith to receive the gift that you have for me. Help us all to do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.